and we're live. Uh, welcome, everybody, to episode 17 of the Redesign Growth Podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us if you're tuning in right before uh, the long uh, July 4th weekend, if, if you're in the US. Um, and hopefully this is an entertaining episode for you to cap off your week before you, you take off for the long weekend. I'm your host, Ritwich Gautam. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host, Tim. And as you know, this is the podcast where we try to see if we talk to enough intelligent people, can we figure out figure something out about the relationship between design and growth? So to that end, we have a very intelligent person that I'm really excited to talk to. Uh, we have John Dilworth. John is the VP of user experience at Lucid. And um, I've, been, I've been excited to talk to him because Lucid has a phenomenal product. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lovely design product. I've used it. Um, and I'm sure a lot of organizations use it for their whiteboarding and ideating and diagramming. Uh, so to that end, uh, before before we hop into it, I think my guests always do a better job of introducing themselves than I do. So, uh, John, could you tell our listeners just a little bit about about yourself and uh, and your journey in UX and how you ended up where you are? All right. So I really really interesting. I mean, I can I can go way back to the story because I think it's um, something for me that that really kicked this off. I went. I mean, I went to I started college in 1990 <laughs> so that'll i mean that'll date me a little bit but <laughs> an interesting time because it was before why do you, before internet and before mm-hmm. even we didn't I, I mean the computer lab i went to for graphic design was used like exclusively for they had a really expensive computer they bought to prep the plate for printing i mean that was like the computer was just getting just starting to get used in everything. Right. And so it was, but during those, during those college years, it was like big advancements came. Like, I mean, we had a lab with a black, it was a, a scanner that would do bitmap scans. So black and white dots. That's all we, that's what we started with. And then in the time, you know, to when I graduated in 90, 95, it was, okay, we have all this new stuff. We have, we have color, color displays, color printers, color, scanners i mean we used to used to scan an image i put it on the scanner and then we'd go get lunch and come back because it took like an hour to scan like a color image and get it saved to the computer Mm -hmm. but it was like this really really cool thing i mean and to print to print something in color we didn't have any color printers but i figured out they had a color photocopier that was brand new tech and i figured out i could do from the we use this it was it was called ready set go which became eventually Adobe or Quark Express and then Adobe InDesign is similar product, but you could, you could uh, split, you could print black and white versions of the color separations. And then I took it to the lab that had this color printer and I made, I had them like run the same sheet through four times and I get like a color print because it would print like, <laughs> like just do one color each yeah. on these things. And they were, um, it ruined their machine once. And I was like, Oh, it just won't go back. But <laughs> But it was super exciting time. So the the web kind of started up and I was I was working on campus for this tech department and we'd like watch the internet. We had you'd pull up the browser and it was like these are the new sites added to the internet. It was like right. there were like four new sites on the internet and it was I mean that lasted for like a week, but it was pretty it was just like this exciting time. Everything was changing, going so fast. So I started with, you know, barely having 
computers that could manipulate graphics to graduating. And we're like all learning HTML and CSS and trying to build web pages and and figure out all of this new, new tech flash comes out. And we're just like in this exciting era. And I got a job doing some prototyping for a software company that was like, Oh, we can use this new tech to, to build prototypes, test the designs before we, before we deliver it to customers. And so my, my start in in 96, I worked for a hardware company called iOmega. I don't know if you, if anyone remembers that. It's we made a product <laughs> called the Zip Drive, and it was a hundred megabyte oh, I know the zip floppy drive. disk, which was this amazing invention because it used to have 1.4 megabyte, and they had a hundred megabyte disk, and it was it was like you could buy it for twenty dollars. Where at the time, storage was just like it was like really expensive. I mean, you didn't yeah. buy a computer at college; you bought a disc to store your stuff on. And that was like what you could afford. Mm-hmm. So I, I got that start developing software, then then designing websites. And it kind of evolved into this user experience where, okay, now companies are building software. I was, I've kind of been in that the my whole career. I spent a lot of years at, at Ancestry.com where started with a, a design team. When I, when I came on, there were five people on the design team. And when I left eight years later, we had had a design team of over 40 and uh, it just, I mean, that time of like really building, you know, what is this practice of product design or product management, product design, user experience design, the discipline has kind of grown um, over my career. Like, like it just, it wasn't really a thing. It was like, well, we could get designers to help with this stuff and that would make it better to, Oh, now there's this whole discipline it works like that. You can get a you can get a graduate degree now in these areas that nothing like that exists existed when I went to school. There was right. there was like a fringe element of of HCI or human computer interaction that really came out of engineering schools, and that's kind of been fused with what you find in other design and humanities. And that's been um, it's kind of fun to to be on that that track, and it's super exciting now. Like working, you know, I went from Ancestry. I spent a little bit of time at. Uh, in structure, another it's another Utah company that mm-hmm. builds Canvas that's used in schools, and spent some time doing doing my own contracting. And then I was approached by our our chief product officer at Lucid, who I'd worked with. I worked with him at Ancestry for a brief brief period, and he was telling me about Lucid, and I was like, I, you know, like diagrams, like that's not. I don't know, like if I can get excited, I use it in my stuff, but I'm really. Uh, and, you know, and as he kind of introduced me to the, to the company and to the product, just like a really, really exciting thing. So I've been at Lucid now for just coming up on three years and been super fun. It's a super innovative company. Um, really, really kind of an exciting time in the space. Cause we're building, you know, all of this web tech, the, the designers have dreamed of being able to do is like available. I mean, there's still things that we want to work on with more performance and more capability, but what you're able to do now is you can really kind of bring to pass a lot of this ideas and kind of a new way of working that's happened with more remote and hybrid workplaces. And just, I don't know, like, it feels like I'm in my groove. Yeah. It's like, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of designs, lots of things that we can put together and um, real exciting. And Lucid has been, you know, a great company growing a lot. When I started, we were, we had just under, 20 total on our uh, UX team. And we're, we've ramped that up to just over 40 now, including interns and everything that's involved in it. 
Yeah. Uh, I think, I think so. First of all, I, th- I think like it's, it's always great for me to, to talk with someone like you because you've kind of seen the discipline of design, right? From, from its like nascent stage evolve into what it is today. And, and I mean, it's continuing to evolve because even now, like I'd say UX research and UX design is in a, in a stage of like nascency, or there's like a lot of, uh, a lot of thought leadership and like competing ideas about how, you know, the best way to, to put together a design process and stuff like that. And that's still happening. And, and you're kind of seeing it evolve. Um, before I hop into like how how you think about design at Lucid, uh, but broad scale, right? Taking a snapshot of you know from the early early stages of like HCI to, to where design is at now, would you say there's like one mat like what's a massive change in how people think about designing things that you 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 think has come to play right like or, or has come to the forefront uh, from from back then. I, I want to tack on to this question too, and, and um, just, just out of curiosity, I'm, I'm wondering, John, if um, you feel that there's been an impact on the way that you understand good design, good product design, good UX, having seen, you know, grown up without internet and seen the internet go through all of its iterations until now, if, if you understand good design, interaction design, UX design a different way than uh, you've seen some younger people who have been kind of embedded in the internet their whole lives, maybe. Uh, okay, like I um, just to, to capture that, I think that for me, I went to like graphic design school, so I had like this idea of aesthetics, layout, like things being you know, visual styles, a lot of it was marketing focused, like how do you build a good ad that attracts attention and communicate? My degree was called visual communications and it was about hierarchy and, and those right. like general design principles. And when I, when I started working, I worked for an engineer who had come out of the, the human computer interaction, um, more the engineering science of, and, and what I saw is that I was like, oh, this is like an engineer's interpretation of like the humanities. Like it's right. It's we can there's a scientific way to do <laughs> to do this thing that they teach in a different in a different way right. uh, to art students, for example. And the the thing that I think is really interesting today is that you you do have a good combination, but there is some like I see a lot of young design students that dis- like discover typography. And, you know, I, I had a lot of courses and I had to make typefaces. I had to go through this process. Right. And, and now there'll be someone, like I'll be working with some designers in a mentorship capacity where they're like, I want to learn more about typography. And they don't have that background and they don't have that, that structure. They know what looks good. They're really in tune with the trends are really sharp. Like I am amazed at the designers we get that come out of school. I mean, I would be ashamed to even have anyone look at my portfolio at that stage. Cause I made some of the, the most horrendous, like awful things back then. Cause I just, we didn't know about how computers work and we tried, you yeah. know, we're just trying stuff. I mean, I worked for three years making like crazy if you remember the trend of flash, it was like website intros and these big, like animated things and right. they would play and they became so frustrating to everyone. 
we know we make jokes about it now. It's like, oh, can you design the skip intro button? And <laughs> that was like the joke. But, you know, there are designers, the designers that we hire now that are new and fresh out of school, they they really grasp intuitively how people use how people use computers, what things are going to be important. And they have a lot of really great ideas about that. The one thing that I think the younger designers miss is like how complicated the other side of that is. It's like the front end is like, oh, you can build this thing and I can make a, I have all the tools. I can make a Figma prototype that looks like exactly like I want it and how it's going to work. Yeah. And the flip side of that is like, you're talking about a two to $3 million project. It's going to take 20 engineers full time to build this whole year. And right. they don't, there's like a gap in the understanding of how, of how that works. Right. Um, I, you know, I saw this transition from a, a graphic design project working for, I spent a couple of years working for a graphic design agency and you get a project, it comes in, one person works on it, you get it to the press, you know, maybe three people touch the project, you hand it to the printers, one printer looks at it and you do the, and you do the job. So you might get like five people in the full life cycle and the full project might be, Ten, fifteen thousand dollars. So it's like there's a, you know, including the printing costs and what you pay the yeah. agency. You know, so it's, I mean, there are bigger costs depending on how many you print and that, but the scope of that is pretty small. Mm-hmm. If you think of, you know, building software for company like like Lucid is, you know, a thousand. We have over a thousand employees, and if you just average what the salary is going to be for that and look at the product we're building. You know, this is the same budget as building a skyscraper. It's like it's going to cost, you know, a huge building, you know, yeah. multi-million dollar pro- pro- building project. And it includes mm-hmm. engineers and architects and blueprint and construction. Like everyone has to work together and move through that process. And a new a designer that comes out of school, they've they've kind of learned. They do. They go through the whole process in a very micro way. So they they do projects that you can do start to finish and they cover all the steps and they have a very thoughtful process. And, and a lot of designers focus on that, that process that they were taught in school or ideas they have about the process. And you get into a company like this and it's like, Oh, well, there's, there's a lot more to that. There's your design role is one piece of hundreds that have to make this project get finished. And so there can be some people get into it and work really great with it. Others, you get a little bit frustrated and it's like design knows this thing. And why don't we do it this way? And it's like, well, there's, you know, because that costs a hundred million dollars to do it that way. And our budget is, is half that or a 10th of that or whatever. And (laughs) there's some just gap in understanding about that. And I I still, I still run into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Uh, Another, no, go ahead. No, like I'm, I I think there's this, you know, like pie in the sky idea, right? I, I think what you say about, you know, the younger generation, I, I, I would like to consider myself a part of it still, you know, uh, and like we, we kind of grew up around the technology. So I think just as at, like our canonical understanding of like what is, what is good, what is easy to use is I feel more intuitive because like we've just been around it longer right and like a lot of core functionalities for us have been uh, on these on these tools for longer right uh but but i feel like it's also uh it, it starts getting like more and more removed from 
like an execution standpoint, right? Like, like, Hey, like, what is it going to take to get this perfect thing? Or like, what is it going to take to get to make this thing awesome? And, and, and like, we, you know, the ability to think about that and use that to then titrate the scope. I feel that is the part that needs to be learned more than like understanding, Hey, what is a, like, what is a beautiful thing? Right. Or like, what is, what is like a good, uh, good experience or a good design experience? Yeah. 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 Um, the, the other, the other thing I was, I was going to mention is, you know, you talked about design processes and what, you know, what is a good process? What is the right process? I do see, a lot of focus on the on that aspect, and what what I've learned over the years, and I'll just tell a little story about this. So I, about ten years after I finished my, after I graduated with my undergraduate degree, I was in like a situation where I thought, you know, I, some point in my career, I, I mean, I might want to teach at a university, and I need to get like the terminal degree. So uh, MFA is a terminal design degree uh, mm-hmm. or in visual in visual communications that area and so I was looking as like now is a good time I, I have a job where I could probably get this done while I'm while I'm working I decided to go back to school and I figured now 10 years have passed on the internet and maybe there's some like educational resources so I went I found a program it was an online program through Academy of Art in San Francisco and I I chose it specifically because I could do it while I was working. I looked at right. budgeted it out. And, and I also thought, I, I believe that online or remote education is really high potential for the future. And I, I found three, only three schools at the time that had anything like that. And Academy of Art had a good, they had a good, the way that they set it up looked really interesting to me. So I went into that and I did this three-year master's degree and, you know, I came out of that program and I had, I, I was in the same position. I was like, okay, I've been taught this theory and I have this practice now. And I, I spent a lot of time developing and spending time around what I thought was the best design process. I had like these checklists and, okay, we're going to do this, this, and this, 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 and this. And um, I remember implementing it at a project where for Ancestry, where I was like, we're going to go through this process. It's going to work really well. The project was like a total disaster. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it failed. We didn't get to a good solution. We followed the process to the T. But right. in the end, it didn't work for the business or the users. Like it just, there weren't any, it was, it looked nice, all the stuff. We did all the interviews. We did all of the stuff in the process and we didn't get a great result. And right. I had hired a, or we had hired a, another designer, Rob Rob Foster, that I did, that I built the flag machine with. Okay, yeah. Now Rob is a really intuitive designer. He's like, you ask him what his process is, and I remember he's like, mm, I don't know, I just like try some things of what I think, and then I get a result. He worked, he was working on a different project, and I watched him work, no process know anything and they built this incredible product that (laughs) did everything correctly and so it made me question okay it's not process is not going to guarantee you success process is just something to do when you don't know what else to do Mm -hmm. it lets you go through it but there i i've started to look at process as much more of a malleable item yeah. It's like there are things you can do 
And if the project product or project that you're working on needs those things, you should do them. Yeah. But the order at which they happen doesn't matter. Like maybe you start, maybe you have a high fidelity idea that you can build really quickly and test it with users. If you have that and you can test it with users and it works, you didn't need to do wireframes, then this and then that, yeah. and like approach it through fidelity. All right. There isn't a problem with that. If you have a high fidelity, if you start out at that point and it takes you a month to do high fidelity and it fails, you probably, you look at the project and you're like, yeah, in hindsight, we should have tried a lot of things much quicker and got there faster. All right. And so I, when I think of process, I, I think, okay, what are the needs of this project? And what, you know, who's working on it? Like, is the person working on it? Does, do they have that intuition to try something quickly? Can they do it? Can they build it quickly? Or can they, are they other type of person? It reminds me of, of you know, I was just in Italy and yeah. we, you know, you go in to see the, the, in Florence, the sculpture by Michelangelo of the David. Right. And we had a, we had a guide who was talking about it and it just hit me that, in the in the case of Michelangelo, he's kind of famous for having the block of marble and carving it, carving it down and let finding the thing that's in the block of marble. Right. And we also in the same exhibit, they showed us how some of the other sculptors work, which was they built things out of plaster, which is quick, fluid medium, and they get it to look like they want. It's really easy. You, you have a plaster and you can carve it down. You can at, build it up. You can do whatever. And they get like a plaster um, model of what they wanted. Yeah. And then they put little, they could put little uh, marker points all over it and extend with a wire. And then they knew exactly from the block, they could, they could measure down like, okay, from the block square, this needs to be eight, you know, Right. They were able to like ratio it in. down to the model. Yeah, and, and they get, and that way they can cop basically make a copy in marble of it and then have craftsmen work on it. They might have mm -hmm. someone who's really good at chiseling to, you know, yeah. to get it down or, or have it work that way. So, you know, it, a lot of it depends on who's working on it, what is the project and what process components are going to most benefit it more than it is. There's this process that you work, work through. Right. You know, I, yeah. made, I made a I made a joke in one presentation that you see a lot of designers spent time on build, and I did this. I'm guilty of building these process models and showing here's my process, and I have this complicated diagram that shows who you talk to, when you do it, the the double diamond thing. And <laughs> right. I remember doing some doing some uh, graphic design history, and you find these these alchemy diagrams that people are showing their you know, their mental models of how alchemy works, combination of spiritualism and science. Yeah. And I'm like, those are modern day, modern day process diagrams are just those, those crazy <laughs> alchemy diagrams that we see. It's like the same thing. Yeah. It's, it, it, I mean, yeah, you could, you could painstakingly describe like a, like a multi-step, like beautiful process, but is it actually going to yield what we're trying to get it to yield is like, you know, that, that still is, uh, it, you know, that part kind of gets glossed over sometimes. I feel like uh, your point about getting too focused on the process and not like being, being sort of malleable and flexible to adapt to, Hey, is this actually taking me where I want to go? Right. That's something that uh, I think a lot of a lot of designers kind of get caught up in that. Uh, 
<clears throat> so I just want to switch gears real quick and and talk specifically about about Lucid. So um, Lucid's mission is like you know we you're you're helping teams see and build the future, and 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 I love that, right? Uh, and as a uh, as like a product suite, you have Lucid Chart, Lucid Spark, and Lucid Scale. If yes, I'm that's right. right. And and, and uh, are just confirm uh, you're the VP of UX across all three of the products. Yes. So, what what I what I'd love to know from from your end is, you have something at its core, right? It's about like visualization and like, and I feel like that is. Because it's visualization, uh, design is obviously a core, core part of what it is. Because there's a lot of whiteboarding tools out there. There's, you know, there's Mural, there's Miro, uh, you know, there was, uh, there was one that came out of Fresco. There's, there's all of these different tools. Uh, but but the, I feel like the thing that makes me choose one over the other is just all about how does it feel? Like, it's such an esoteric thing. So how do you, how do you distill that into... Uh, like product decisioning and feature decisioning. How do you take this thing of like, hey, it's got to feel like people's got people have got to feel like they're collaborating or something, something like that. And how do you translate that into design directive? So a, a great question. Uh, we have. I, I'm going to start a little bit with the, some history on Lucid Chart. So Lucid Chart is a is a really fascinating project. So I think it's about. Over over ten years ago, uh, Ben Dilt, who's the he's a, a chief chief technology officer, he was working with some Visio documents, and he thought this is a pain. I want a web version of this, and he so engineer, and he builds Lucid Chart. Hmm. So one engineer, like he, it starts from an engineering perspective, and right. it was it was kind of a copy of the desktop software Visio from Microsoft. We need like yeah. a, a diagramming tool. Uh, and Lucid Chart being online gives you these new capabilities. And Lucid Chart was one of the first companies to introduce this, uh, you call it like multiplayer mode. I think around the same time, maybe before Figma, you know, having multiple people work on the same thing in the document. I don't know the exact dates on that, but it was yeah. a pioneer in that space. This just natural part of, of collabor collaborating together online. And one of the chief you know, main points. And, the, but the audience has always been really technical, technical diagramming. So right. network architecture, uh, organizational org charts, big thing. I mean, there's all kinds of these shape libraries and that you can pull into lucid chart. And as such lucid chart also offered, you could use it like a whiteboard. And so when some of these whiteboarding tools come up, well, they started adding in some of the whiteboarding features and there was a point, it was just before, this was before I started. It was, you know, I heard about the discussions when I was talking with our chief product officer to join that, okay, we're going to build a, you know, whiteboarding specific tool and expand from just lucid chart to a suite of mm -hmm. products. And they, they were working on lucid spark, which is an incredible design story. They were able to leverage that technology they had in lucid chart. And they, the whole time from concept to release, of 1.0 Lucid Spark was four months. Like it was ridiculously wow fast product to get to launch. Wow. Okay. Four months. And four That's months. Crazy. That's unbelievable. Honestly. Yeah. It's just. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And when, and when you know they launched it, there were some really delightful things that they added in, and some, uh, you know, the our our head of our director, senior director of UX over 
the lucid spark specifically Lin Lindsay martin was just she has like this vision for these products should be kind of fun it's like in her personality and her mm -hmm. direction on it really helped it helped it grow that way and you know lucid scale was a slightly different product that launched about a year year and a half ago where it was on the technical side they had built a a plugin that worked with lucid chart where right. you could connect to you could enter in your AWS cloud credentials or your Google cloud credentials, and then get a visualization of your cloud architecture. You can see all right. the components and how they work together. And this was fantastic for audits, finding problems, just understanding what's going on behind. Right. The, like finding the, an orphan. The, yeah. 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 Right. Okay. And that leads into some things that are like, you know, can create some huge cost savings for companies. And so like, it, it's a real specialized product where, uh, Lucid Spark was meant to be. This is like the the easy end. We use it in every meeting. We use it for all kinds of things. So you know, going back to you know the art the art direction from from Lindsay on this project. You know, we work together with with our UX team. So there are, we have three UX directors that report to me over different areas, and we worked on developing core design principles for for our product, and right. those. Um, and th those design principles are what really guide the things that you mentioned. It's like, how is this mm -hmm. product going to feel? And we, we start with, you know, lucid, lucid spark needs to be kind of messy. Like it's about the messy part of design or your things. It's not, we're not trying to make something where you organize everything perfectly and get it laid out because these are almost all throwaway documents. We're not building and publishing a thing like you, like when you work in Figma, it's about I'm building a spec that's got to be perfect. I'm going to give it to my developers. They're going to build it. I want everything pixel perfect. Lucid Spark is we're going to work on this, and things are going to be messy all over the board. It's just meant to communicate an intent. We might use it in a meeting or presentation, but it's not. We're not going to keep it forever. We just use it for a while. All right. And so you know the principles that come into play are like well, we want this to be fun. We want people to engage quickly with it. We want to create an environment where there's, you know, there's no, we call it no dead ends. So users don't end up doing something that they can't figure out how to get past it. Like, oh, if I import data, is it hard to, is that the end, like the end point? Or can I move this data and mold it into new things and shape it? Right. So this, this set of principles that we have, I'd have to, um, I'd have to pull it up just to get it off the top of my head. I wasn't prepared, but Oh, no worries. Uh, but they're, you know, they're really, really, I think the thing that answers your question is to like, to get a product to feel the way you want and to work the way you want. It's, it's about defining these principles up front that we, that we aim to meet in right. the way we think about our design and the decisions we make, you know, we're not deciding, is this thing good or bad? It's like, does this thing meet those principles that we laid out? It's almost a design corollary to the idea about processes, how there's not one right process that you have to follow. It's, it's contextual to what you're trying to achieve. So with the design, you're maybe doing some things where it's not exactly perfect, you know, pristine. That something, you know, maybe someone going by the UX or design textbook would say, oh, well, your fonts have to be like this and your alignments have to be like that. And if I'm understanding right, maybe you're you're not doing those, you're choosing not to do some of those perfect design things because you want it to feel more kind of almost like messy or, or 
or um, like a messy desk that, that is inspiring creativity rather than perfect order and lines. And is, is that kind of, am yeah, I? Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I keep this, I don't know what I did with my, I've got a copy of the book. I usually keep it around my desk because it makes me not feel so guilty because my office is a mess. There's a book by um, Tim Hartford called Messy. Mm-hmm. It's like one of my favorite books because it's about the the subtitle is the power using the power of chaos to transform your your lives or creativity. And he, you know his argument is like a lot of times we need more mess, less organization, and more mess because that's where you that's where chaos sort of chaos is where new things can happen. Yeah, yeah, I I I, I resonate with that. I think creativity is like a is is a messy thing. I think. You know, the, the, the idea of like a brainstorm and like, you know, the, the, the just the core of it is very like I'm all over the place. I'm going all these places and 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 I feel like too much structure actually kills the spontaneity that might result in, uh, you know, like a like a like an interesting learning or uh, insight. Yeah. Yeah. I, pull, I pulled up these these product principles that we have. And so I'll just go through these real quick. If, cool. yeah. if that works. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. So. We, we call it the we call it the way of the product and we named it that because product management yeah. uh, set up they call they have another thing product and development that they call the way of product development which okay. is how we how we build our products and we wanted one this that described how our products are so the way of the product is we think of them as being unconstrained and expansive and that goes to the nature of these tools being on a, a 2D infinite canvas. Right. Rather than if you go, go down or it has to be linear. And that was a big thing is like that promotes nonlinear ways of interacting with information. So when you right. put things in a list is different than when you space them out and draw lines between things mm-hmm. or group a few together and one over here that has visual meaning that's different than even, even than bold. Like you can do it as bold, like a list with bold. When you're, when you're working with text and these linear things, you, you don't get to take advantage of all the visual ways that you can combine things. Like I can make this one bigger and these other ones smaller. And that has visual meaning that communicates quicker. And it's, you don't have to describe it. You just grab one and move it over here. And everyone that's in the board watching it knows that, oh, that one is separate for some reason. Yeah. And the next one is we call it fluid as thought. So we want our products to be to be fluid, like intuitive and mimic the way that we that we think. So we can, you know, it's easy to get stuff into our product, just like I put something on the desk and work with it. And it's easy to get whatever we put in out. These and we haven't we haven't met all of these, but this is like the drive that right. we want. We don't want our customers to have to think about using our products, it's just like they can just open it do stuff with it. And then when they need to move that to a new, a new thing, they can do it easy. Um, the third principle is, is we call it energizing and delightful. Like delightful is kind of a, a trend word in the industry, like add delight to your product. But we, yeah. we have this word of energizing, which is we want people to, after they use our products, we want them to feel energized, not feel like 
Ugh, that was like <laughs> yeah it's stressful when like, i open like it. just what what do you feel like after ma- managing a bunch of jira tickets like you're just like oh, right. just, like i'm done you know it's not like yeah, that so, yeah. and the the notes we have there is that you know they should inspire curiosity and tinkering is a word mm-hmm. you know we want we want to make the boring work you know more energetic and game-like so mm-hmm. you know we, we actually have a, a great plug-in for for Lucid Spark and Jira, where you can import Jira tasks onto your canvas and they're connected by data. So you get a set of Jira cards that you can just move around on the canvas. You can put them on a timeline, you can put them in buckets. Right. And any of the data that you that you modify or save in Lucid Spark just gets updated in Jira. That's awesome. And so it's like, you know, like that's one of the things about the principles. Like it's way more fun to think of the 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 products like this, when you're in your working session, you don't have to go, you know, change all these drop downs. We're working on some tools that will be, it'll be really cool. Like maybe you just drag uh, someone's avatar onto that card and it assigns it, or you just put, you just put these Jira cards around someone's avatar and then they get assigned just by proximity. Right. I mean, there's cool things that you can make happen. Right. Um, I So what I think, I think, First of all, thanks for sharing the principles and actually pulling it up. I think I think you're the first guest that's like, I have the receipts. Let me pull it up and 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 walk us through it. So th- thanks for that. I what I would love to know is so as like on a more practical basis, right? So you, you have these are almost like ideals, right? It's uh, it's almost like a it's like what you said, the way of the product. It's like very Taoist, uh, you know, just the sense of like this innate thing that you coalesce around, but operationally when you know when you're like okay we we have these designs uh I'm, I, I know i know you have a user research practice how do you at what point do you do you decide like okay we have we have these designs made does this actually are, are you constantly doing this validation check against these principles where after someone designs something you're like all right is it is it uh is it energizing? Is it inspiring? Like, you know, this creativity is it, does it have this, you know, does it, does it have any dead ends or is it expansive? Right. Do you, do you constantly do these checks? Uh, is that how you make sure that, you know, you're not, not going astray because it's hard to kind of translate those things that, which are pretty esoteric into something like, like, you know, a couple of button designs, you know, it's, it's yeah. uh, how, like, what, how does it, how does it cascade down? I guess is my, is my, question and, and it's a like you know and it, it the, if there's no if there's no like perfect answer to it that's fine too but i just i want to know like how how often are you thinking about these principles or is your team thinking about these principles when stuff's being designed so i i think it starts at it starts at a level of you know there is some evangelism that has to take place so we so we will talk about these principles in you know monthly meetings uh we'll share them broadly across the org in you know company updates or meetings and that you know that happens occasionally on when we can get in the schedule and do it in a more broad sense where it really you know where it really takes place is in the the weekly design critiques and their pre-launch of products where the individual directors and managers are meeting with people and looking at designs does this match it now and and that work has been successful in in the sense that you know i reviewed some I reviewed some strategy documents for a new project and they had, they had outlined their proposal against these, 
against these principles. So their proposal right. for building a, a product was like, okay, and we want to do it this way because we want to make it fluid. We do it this way because it matches this principle. And so that, that was an indicator of success that, okay, we're talking about these things and we're, and we're building, we're building right. them through. We, we do not have a formal, um, this is for, this is, this is one that we, that I struggle with in terms of like, what should you do? Because there's, there's a delicate balance of, you could call it like design fascism, where it's like, you just have to do what I say and you're going to present your work and we're going to veto this or that. And yeah. there's a gatekeeping model that everything gets, gets reviewed before it launches. I, I think I watched a, there was a Netflix a series they did on design. I don't know if you saw abstract. Saw that one. Oh, I yeah, love abstract. that. Oh, oh, it's so good. Yeah. There was the, the episode where they did product design and they were showing how design works at, at Instagram. And I was like, that's not me. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's like the product manager and the designer are going in front of the, the VP of design and like checking everything. And he says, yeah. yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Like go do it. It's, it's not that way at Lucid. Like we have right. a, we, one of our company, the company has like values and principles. And one of our company values that we hire for, we do performance reviews against is individual autonomy uh, and empowerment. Right. And so there's this balance and we, we talk about it at work is like, okay, like, do we need a, do we need final reviews? Do we need checklists before it goes to, you know, before it goes into the product? And it's like that makes the teams feel like they don't have autonomy if everything needs to be checked. So our focus is really on these principles, early critique. And if there are things that need to be corrected, you know, we, we favor be fast to launch it, be fast, test anything, like test right. whatever you want. It, if it doesn't match the design system, it doesn't mean you can't test it, like test True. it and make these decisions. Like, you know, be creative, try new things, build it. Sometimes, that means that some stuff that makes me cringe makes it into the product. Yeah. But in that case, what we expect on the other end is, you know, if something gets released that's not good, then do a quick follow-up and fix it. Right. You know, the risk of the the risk is, oh, something was out there wasn't so great, but we learned from it and now we got it better. Versus everyone feels like they have you know, have to go through this rigid structured process that slows down work. Right. They're just doing what they're told. And, 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 and that kind of, I feel like, again, that stifles the creativity aspect. And uh, in general, I feel like the overhead of, of at least with tech, right. You, you know, if you were design, if you're talking about like a physical product, sure. You might need, you know, more oversight, et cetera. But if you have, you know, this iterative that like a product that on its nature, you know, it's like software, it's iterative. You can, you can build on it, you can version it. Um, I think, I think the, the erring on the side of creativity genuinely helps. Um, I had, I had another question, uh, uh, when, when we met at the front, uh, conference, you know, we, we very, very briefly mentioned, like, you know, you, you, you said that you were excited about the applications of AI and, and like, you know, that was, uh, that it was just one sentence and, and clearly now, you know, with, with G like GPT for like generative text AI, uh, you know, mid journey for, uh, you know, visual, like, you know, image AI generation and stuff. 
the the applications like a lot of a lot of companies are are like really bringing ai in and implementing it uh for to like enhance function functions that their users can do right for us for us for our usability testing tool the two big things that we're doing is using ai to allow people to build usability tests faster and on the other side like using ai to analyze those tests faster Mm -hmm. right um what something and and those two are like text use cases so it's just like making sure the ai outputs like like you know a a good usability test and it's a lot of prompt prompt hacking involved on on that use case what i'm curious about is like ai for something like lucid that has like you know it's a it's it's like a mixed media it's like it's got visual stuff and it's got text and it's got diagrams and, and and this idea of like relationships between between things um, how do you design for an AI application on Lucid? So, what, like, if if I was, you know, if I if I'm using Lucid Spark the whiteboard, uh, does like, where do you see AI coming in to to like help me? Is it to summarize the like summarize post whiteboarding session, or is it to like you know help? Okay, we've talked about all of this. Let's give it some additional structure now. Or where where do you, what what excites you the most about like? an application for AI within Lucid? And I guess part two of that question is, how do you think about designing for AI applications? So a month ago, we announced a, you know, a beta for some AI features in Lucid Spark. And those included, you know, we call it like collaborative AI, which is some simple things on the, on the brainstorming end, like you can enter a prompt and it will kick out sticky, stickies around a topic. Right. You can select some stickies and expand those into additional thoughts. And then, you know, additional things that will be coming with that are, you know, a brainstorming session where people have put notes all over. You can select all the notes and have it summarize the, the, the notes. And that works great for research too. It's, it's like, if you're, you, it's the affinity, di- that process of the, the old affinity, affinity diagram where you're moving stickies around, you AI can make that happen and categorize it automatically. It can give you the big summaries, the bigger buckets. And that, that part of it is, is really, really neat there. When it comes to, uh, we're, you know, we're exploring this right now. So there, there's not a lot that I can, I can talk about in terms of what plans we have and what yeah, it's sure, going to be there, is. but it's really, I, you know, from a design design perspective is, the part that I think is is most important with any with any product or any design thing that you're building is that it has to solve a problem for somebody. It has to solve a problem, or it, it, there's two buckets: there's problems and there's opportunities. So, right. the problem that it needs to solve is there's got to be some pain that everyone can understand really well. It's like I mentioned this affinity board thing. Like nobody likes doing that part of the process after mm-hmm. you, you've got a billion sticky notes on the wall and everyone leaves those meetings and the designers and researchers are left in this, you know, third circle of hell moving stickies and trying <laughs> to decide if they match and doing all this work and, and spending hours and hours coming up with their version of like how they think it goes together. Right. And that's a painful process and it takes skill and it takes the right kind of thinking and patience to be able to do it. AI can, you can say, Hey, this can work where it can do that instantly. 
and it can give you five different variations in a minute. And you can go through it and see if it, it matches the way you think about it. So you can get to those conclusions much faster. But right. the point the point is not what as much as what AI can do, but the fact that that part of design, which is identifying a problem clearly, is one of the most important parts of design. It's like identifying and articulating the problem. And as you work on any design project, you're it's it's not it's not necessarily sequential. Like I don't have to just think of how to define the problem in the beginning. It's like you're working on defining the problem and the solution at the same time. Like those are two things that are paired together and they might develop together. You know, if you start with if you start with a solution, a lot of times you find yourself searching for the problem. And that's okay if you find a great application for it. It works. Mm -hmm. That works also. If you have like a problem, you can use a more traditional way we think of design process. Like I know the problem. I can do this process to come up with potential solutions. But sometimes you're like, I have an ill-formed problem and no solution or a medium solution that doesn't really do it. And you work on the two together. You work about how do we explain the problem? How do we talk about the problem? How do we... You know, how does the audience talk about the problem? How does marketing talk about the problem? How do we shape the definition of the problem through the design of our projects so that when we get to the end, it's really easy to describe. There's there's a fantastic book. Um, I just finished this one. It's I think it's pretty new this year from uh, Tony, it's Tony Fidel. It's called Build. Have you heard of this book or read it? No, I have not. Uh, highly recommended. Uh, Tony Fidel was, he worked at Apple and launched the iPod and initially worked on getting the iPhone. And in that book, he brings up the, he says, you know, one of the best things that, that Steve, Steve Jobs was best at was his storytelling method was he'd come on stage and he would describe that problem. And then you reveal the product and you're like, oh yeah, everyone's like, I feel that pain and that product does it, it fixes it for right. me. It's like, and that that magic, and but the way he describes it in the book is that Steve Jobs just didn't magically, you know, wasn't just good at his presentation. It wasn't the presentation writers that came up with that. It was like, they spent three or four years in development perfecting that pain story or whatever, like the way that they talk about it and the problem so that when you have this very clear problem and the paired solution, then it's like so easy for people to grasp. And it's so easy to know what to build because the things match and it works together. And it's a great way to validate your, your product. If you can, if you have like a cool feature, but you can't really describe what this solves for anyone very well. Right. It doesn't, you, you don't have it yet. It's like, you've got to find that application. It might be, finding the audience, it might be, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into that. So, you know, bring it back to the question about AI is, you know, there's a lot of cool things that AI can do, but we, I don't think we know this yet, but what are these huge problems where it's like, oh yeah, I'm, there's no way I'm not doing that without AI anymore because that solves it. Right. For me. Yeah. And for I sure. think that is, that is the fun part. And we're going to get there in two ways. We're going to get there from stab in the dark attempts. We hit something and it's amazing. Or we're going to get there from the research side, which is, you know, we really understand these problems that customers are having and 
you know, being able to realize that AI is a great solution for that and we compare them together. So people are coming at it from all angles. And that's, I mean, that's what we're, we're doing that also. It's like, we're going to, you know, the tech will allow us to do this. So let's get it out there and see what people do with it. That's a valid strategy. Um, That's also research it. What are some of the big problems we know our customers are trying to solve? How can we shape this into a solution that works for them to do that and saves, you know, saves them thousands of dollars or millions of dollars in the process. Right. No, I mean, I think that's a, that's a great way to think about it. Uh, you know, for us internally and, and, and also like, and, and a lot of the other conversations we've had, you know, there's this, you, you can, you know, like tip your hat to the power that like, you know, the latent power of AI, but I feel a lot of harnessing it is, is like very, like human centric, problem centric, uh, you know, there's no, I mean, th- yeah, there might be, look, there might be like backend, like optimize, like optimization based applications of AI that are just like machine to machine and it just makes things smoother. Sure. But in terms of like any, any like interactive application of AI, I feel, uh, you know, it, it really is about how well it solves the problem. Um, I mean, and I, yeah, personally, I found some, I found some applications that I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm like hooked for certain yeah, reasons. Same. I mean, I got back from, I got back from Italy and we had a terrible rental car experience and, you know, I dread the follow-up on those kinds of things because <laughs> it's hard for me to write like a complaint letter or, uh-huh. or do any, you know, anything like that. And, and I I'll stew over it. And I, and by the time, you know, let's say, so let's say it cost me 500 extra dollars which is roughly accurate because yeah. of screw up of the, of the yeah. rental company. Yeah. And there's, a, you know, my, my time is worth that. And if I stew over it 10 or 12 hours to write this thing and to follow up, then there's, I'm just like, uh, whatever. It's just like, yeah, just let it be. I'll eat the the drug, forget yeah. about it. So I thought, well, I'm going to try I'm going to try this with AI. And I just, I put in, I spent 10 minutes and I put in all the facts. I just said, okay, here's what happened. Here's the, here's what it cost me. Here's my confirmation number. Here's the rental car service. Here's this. I said, draft a letter that um, requests a refund for these funds because of inconvenience it caused on my trip. And writes out a letter. I looked at it and like, that is pretty good. And I send it and they're like, okay, we're, thank you for your letter. We were following up and we get back to you. I'll see what happens. But for me, it's like, okay, like that would take me easily five hours and a lot of stress to write yeah. that on my own. Cause that's not my writing complaint letters is not my specialty, but ten, I can put 10 minutes in. And if I get yeah. $500 for 10 minutes of effort, that's like, that'll be like highly worth it. For sure. Uh, for, for me, it's like the AI note takers, man. Like uh, I, for, uh, I use one called Woodpecker. Any call that I'm in, it just hops into my Zoom meeting or a Google Meet meeting. And it's like a silent participant and it takes the transcript and it's able to basically chop it into meaningful chunks. Uh, and I love it. Like, I, I don't, I don't like going into meetings without it now, just cause oh, it's like, like the summarization process of just like taking the thoughts and distilling them from meeting. Uh, now it's just so much easier to do and sharing that with other people too. So much easier to do. So, uh, you know, I see that for sure. Uh, Tim. All right. You know what? We're uh, just about, 
running out of time yeah. here. Um, actually going a little bit long. It's been a fantastic conversation. I don't think, I mean, some of the yeah. major beats we usually even try to hit in an episode, we didn't even get to everything because of how much fun yeah. we were having talking about UX and, and uh, all the stuff that we've covered in this chat. John, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks thank you. It's been fun to chat. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, before we end the episodes, we like to give our guests an opportunity to plug whatever they want or tell the listeners about anything that you've got going on, anything you want to let people know about. Um, floor is yours. Okay. Um, well, I would just say, you know, definitely if you get a chance, like take a look at, at, at Lucid Spark. We recently introduced an, a new feature that's pretty, it's pretty exciting. Like we, over the past year, we've been developing a feature we call visual activities and the, you have to really try it to kind of understand, understand how it works. But the, the idea is that you have a collaborative whiteboards right now and you can work together in the whiteboard and it's all synchronous, but there are times when you need to see an individual individual viewpoint separate from, from everyone else. So the idea behind the visual activities and, I don't know. It might be. If, could I share a screen and just give like a yeah, quick demo? I, I think. Yeah. yeah, I think we can. Let's do it. Let's see if it. See what it does. I've got two monitors, and uh, you should have a little present button at the bottom uh, that you should be able to hit, um, and that should allow you okay. to share your screen. All right, I got it. Let me know if you you see it up there now. Okay, uh, well, I think I change the. I think I've got to change the layout for it to show. Uh, I, 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 I think I've got I've got the right layout. Then I'm going to change it one time. Yeah. All right. Um, cool. Uh, yeah. If you if you try presenting it now, John. Oh, you know what? Hold on. There we go. I had to add it to. The okay. Screen. All right. Perfect. No. So so I've got Lucid Spark up here, and we have a, a new feature called Visual Activities, and Visual Activities are something you can drag onto the canvas. So I'm just going to give like a quick, uh, quick example. So we, you drag this onto the canvas and you get a template and the template is, you know, something you can, you can just add any content from any content from Lucid Spark. You can drag in, or you can put a screenshot, uh, mm -hmm. whatever it is. So just, just for the, the sake of this demo, I'll, I'll put in a feature, um, like, you know, we'll just say how likely to use this feature. We we'll just call it like AI suggestions. And I have my document here and I can, I can preview what it does. So I save the changes and now I have an activity that sits on the canvas. So people come in and they hit the start button and they get into this activity mode and they have a, a little slider that they can just, just yeah. drag a slider and you submit your, you submit that feature and now you can view the, you can view the results of that, that feature. And you can see, so I'm in the results view and I can mm -hmm. see this is where, this is where John put it. Right. I mean, it's like, it's a real simple, real simple thing, but I go back to my document and see there's one response. So we're using this all the time in meetings, like, okay, we've gone through a brainstorm and we'll say, okay, let's, let's rank the ideas. So I can give you an example of, of something like that. We, just do a single axis drag this in and i you know we have like idea one i'm doing this really quickly 
I'm running out of time. <laughs> uh, so a little bit long if we have to. I do want I then you just send this out to people and they get yeah. a screen here and they can say, okay, idea one is high, idea two is low, I submit it. And then you can get the results for how the whole group viewed each of each of these ideas. That's really cool. And we're using this, we're using this a ton in the product. We have a design team will put here's four variations of this icon, and they put it in a visual activity and send it out to the team and or or users, they send it out to users. And then they get like a quick idea of what, of what people think about the idea without having to go through a lot of work of creating a survey or right. scheduling meetings. So I think that, you know, this, this is one, I think it's a really innovative, uh, innovative feature that we've added to Lucid Spark that's, you can't really get anywhere else. And, and there's the variety of templates is just really fun. We do, we do some, you know, we have these, team building activities that are built in just to give examples, but uh, yeah. you know, you can, you can come in and take an activity like this right. where, where it's like, okay, what's your, what's your favorite chocolate and people uh, can just rank these items and yeah. submit it. And you, and so they're used for team building, but mainly this is just to kind of give ideas of what you can use it for, but we're finding a lot of power in this and some of the features that we'll see adding on are, are really, really exciting where you'll be able to take this data and move it into other, other platforms or take data from one file and then rank it and have it go back into that. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, Already just as you're sharing your screen, I'm seeing some of the application of, of these um, principles uh, or, or the, the ethos of the design that uh, yeah. works on. I'm, I'm seeing those in practice. I'm noticing things uh, in ways that, that aligns with that. So that was fun. Yeah. Um, all right. I guess we, we really do need to wrap up now. Uh, to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we'll be back here, same time, same place next Friday. And we hope you'll join for the next episode. John, thanks again. Uh, we'll have to connect sometime. You know, we're, me and Ritter are both in Salt Lake City as well. Yeah, let's uh, go get some beers, hang yeah. out. Yeah. We'll, we'll do All right. I'd love to. Yeah. All right. Have a great long uh, Fourth yeah. of July weekend, uh, everyone in the U.S. For those not, have a great regular weekend. Bye-bye. Okay. Right. Thanks for having me. Bye.